The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, formerly Bums on Seats, your one-stop shop for top film critique here on Cambridge 105 across the city in South Cambridgeshire. Thanks to Ian for the last hour, but now it's time to lean back in your seats and be carried away by the worldly opinions of our critics here in the studio on films big and small, in cinemas and on streaming. I'm Lorcan O'Neill, and laying the cards out this absolutely gorgeous spring afternoon are Simon West. Hello. Uh, Vicky Eyre. Hello. Henry Jordan. Hello. And Stuart Pask. Hello. The films on the table here today. Newt Scamander must foil a treacherous election in the wizarding world with the help of wise and noble Dumbledore in the latest Fantastic Beasts entry. A pair of A-listers get swept up in an epic jungle adventure following a kidnapping attempt in the Lost City. The co-creator of Game of Thrones has a shift intact and brings us an unusual coming-of-age story in the Netflix-released Metal Lords. An army of British talent leads us through the planning stages of a most unusual mission in World War II drama Operation Mincemeat. Acclaimed director Robert Eggers goes from a tiny island off New England to the grand Shakespearean stage of Norse action adventure in The Northman. And finally, we bow our heads in reverence as Paul Verhoeven returns to theatres with an, a new opus that would uh, be, just be disappointing if it wasn't incredibly controversial. It is, of course, Benedetta. So let's get stuck right in and play a game of Never Have I Ever with the Dumbledores. Bhutan. Some of our most important magic has its origins there. And they say if you listen carefully enough, the past whispers to you. The world as we know it is coming undone. Things that seem unimaginable today will seem inevitable tomorrow. Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore is the third entry in the offshoot Harry Potter series. The devious Grindelwald returns, this time portrayed by Mads Mikkelsen, with a nefarious plot to gain control of the wizarding world. Magizoologist Newt and his old school professor must lead a ragtag team to uncover and thwart the conspiracy, revealing an unusual family history along the way. Vicky, people seem a lot more neutral on this uh, spin-off series than the core Harry Potter films. Um, does this uh, film do anything to, like the film's tagline suggests, return to the magic? Um, I think with this one, um, it's like my most favourite probably out of the trilogy so far. Um, there's definitely a lot of nostalgia. It goes back to, you know, some parts of Hogwarts, you see the Quidditch, but they do bring elements um, and surprise us with like, you know, the textbooks and like things that we personally remember from the original films throughout it and in drips and drabs. And it definitely hit me in the best of times throughout it and kept me engaged. Cool. So a, a nostalgic assault for Vicky. Simon, we're um, well over halfway in the proposed five-film series. Um, did this film do anything to make you keen for the sequels? Um, not really. Um, I mean, it's hard to talk about the Harry Potter, the uh, new Fantastic Beast films without talking about J.K. Rowling and the um, controversy around her comments and participation in this film. Um you have to look at that and she is very involved being a screenwriter and a scriptwriter and wanting to develop the others and there is nothing in this film that makes me want to continue to support the the series and watch the rest of the films it was it was okay um it was probably better than the last ones um which isn't actually saying much but it felt like it could have been wrapped up as a trilogy it could have been finished off and i'm not sure why they're going to be going any further 
I have a feeling Warner Brothers has a pretty good answer for that. Um, there are no shortages, of, uh, like Simon says, Henry, there's no shortages of controversies uh, both behind the camera and in front of it. Um, uh, but does the does the film make you forget about all that and transport you to the, the kind of ma- the magical wizarding world? I, no, I, <laughs> it's, it's a simple answer for me. I really wanted to be swept away by this. I rewatched all the Harry Potter films last year when we were back in lockdown and kind of remembered that there was a real magic to them that charmed me as I was growing up. And I think at its best, this film does capture that. There's a scene in a prison with Newt and his brother, which is really like really fun and really enjoyable. It's the kind of you know, forgive the pun, but it's the kind of magic that you want from these films. But it gets so bogged down in the kind of machinations of the plot and the characters, and none of it makes any sense or is ever properly justified. It is literally established early on that the plot has to be confusing so that no one can predict the future. And this just seems like a very flimsy excuse for poor screenwriting, as characters, you know, swap allegiances with no warning as plot development developments occur with, you know, absolutely no forewarning. There is no reason for any of this to be happening other than Warner Brothers wants to keep making Harry Potter money. Uh, Vicky, did you, like um, Henry says, there is a lot of uh, subplots in the film. Do you mm. think the film, the story, manages to stay on track? I mean, if you really pay attention to it, yes. <laughs> um, but I think what has mainly happened in this film is you've lost the main star a little bit, and um, because of that because of so many subplots that are led by different side characters of the new series and they've introduced a lot of new characters in this film but that is not exactly a negative thing it's probably why i enjoyed this a bit more you see the introduction of um jessica williams um as a a professor with new like a professor of charms and then you have richard coyle who comes as aberforth which is Dumbledore's brother and then you have jude law is like the main kind of center of attention throughout this film and I think this different dynamic has worked a bit better, and it's not Eddie Redmayne's fault exactly, but it does. It just there's so many better scenarios because of these characters being introduced that it's no longer he's the forefront of the series, which could be a bit confusing because the storyline gets a bit warped that way. But I am, I feel like it's a benefit and. We have to talk about, like, you know, the introduction of Mads Mikkelsen, um, who has taken over Johnny Depp's role as Gellart Grindelwald, and I will watch Mads on anything, and I think he is a great swap-out. I think this is a very well-done um, choice in casting. Well, I was going to talk about that, because the, the swap-out between Johnny Depp and Mads Mikkelsen is... Um it's not very ceremonious. There's no changing of hands. It's just, this is your new Grindelwald now. Mm. Um, I think I've heard people say that while Mads Mikkelsen's performance is better, he's not as good a uh, Grendelwald. Do we think that, like, perhaps Mads Mikkelsen is just relying on his usual charming shtick and maybe not doing an appropriate performance? I think, um, I, I don't think he's relying on a shtick. I, because I don't, there's not a lot of Grindelwald backlog, and like what they are doing with the series is cu- tying up loose ends from their original, the original set, including the um, Ariana Dumbledore storyline, which I wanted to see fully like developed, and like, it gets that in this. But I think what Mads has that maybe Johnny Depp didn't was the kind of chemistry with him and Jude Law, which is very present in the film, and I just don't think it was pulled off before he was introduced, and it's definitely. A, key plot line. Okay. Any, any thoughts on the casting from the others? I mean, it, 
Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't he actually the third actor to play um, Grindelwald? Because doesn't Colin Farrell play I mean, fourth if you consider the film. photograph um, and the Deadly Hollows. So they are getting on to the replacing the actor every single film. Mm. So, it may, so it's going to be interesting to see whether Mads does actually manage to stick around for the next film as well. Um, but I thought. I mean, it's a central character between, I mean, Jude Law and Madeleine Mickelson are both fantastic actors and they do give it the wall in this. Um, I think they are stronger leads than Eddie Redmayne um, has been. And it's just a shame that we don't see more uh, Catherine, Water- uh, Catherine Waterston. Yeah, Catherine um, Watson just doesn't show up. So she plays uh, Tina Goldstein and she doesn't really show up a lot in this. And uh, I feel like Queenie has taken over her presence and I'm not, I mean, I prefer that in a way. Um, maybe that's why I think Queenie is a much more charismatic character on screen and it's not uh, Tina Waterstein's fault but I just I prefer the dynamics that are happy now and I would say I would agree with Simon in that this would have acted better as a trilogy of films but because they've introduced all these new characters I kind of probably will stick around for the rest of them Okay, do you think maybe the because um, I know Queenie's kind of a fan favourite was there is there a little bit of kind of outside influence in these movies now, detracting from what should be the kind of Newt Scamander story? Um, well, go back to like Henry's point about lazy screenwriting. <laughs> um, maybe they are just taking out um, outside influence so that yeah. they can survive five films, but we'll see how that goes. I mean, I got um, the impression that some of the actors and some of the characters who joined were mainly there as substitutes for other actresses and actors who weren't able to make the uh, the mm-hmm. latest films, so it just seems they are adding more people just so they've got enough cast. Mm. And before we like wrap anything up, I just want to say like Dan Fogler as Jacob um, Kowalski, if you really think about it, it's never truly been Eddie Redmayne's series because he've ha- he's had such a charismatic counterpart in in Jacob and I think he's like a joy to see in any situation and even the the series is called Fantastic Beasts and I I really enjoyed the magical creature part I really like was having a little giggle at all the like Henry mentioned little scenes throughout and I just think that's really enjoyable and that's a part of the nostalgia of the Harry Potter Harry Potter series and it was fun. It was. I had. I had fun. Are we relying? Are, are they relying a little too much on the nostalgia for the Harry Potter series? Do we, Do we think, or would audiences shy away from something that doesn't? I think with this one, they're really kind of going into like there is a return to Hogwarts. It's named after Dumbledore. They're really pushing for the. This is a Harry Potter film. It's related to the Harry Potter universe. For what was originally just a Wizarding World film, it now very much feels like a Harry Potter prequel. Hmm. Okay. Well, opinions ranging ranging from fun to fundamentally awful here in the studio. Fantastic Beasts 3 is a certificate 12A, and you can catch it at all three Cambridge cinemas. Next up, someone forgot to call The Rock, but Channing Tatum will be more than suitable beefcake to accompany Sandra Bullock through the equatorial jungle. You led me straight to the lost city. Now, prepare to die. There are just hundreds of snakes in this temple just waiting for us to show up. What? Why aren't they biting that guy? This is ridiculous. Delete. 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 Listen, Loretta, we need you to promote your new book on the lost city. You can't spend your life in the bathtub drinking Chardonnay with eyes. Gentlemen, the world's sexiest cover model, Dash McMahon! You do know you're not Dash, right? Dash is a character I made up. Dash! Oh, my God. Oh, crap. Miss Sage, I enjoyed your book about the lost city, and I believe... 
Bullock plays romance novelist Loretta Sage, struggling for inspiration when one Daniel Radcliffe makes a proposition that will test her credentials and leave her stranded on a treacherous journey when her very own Fabio-type cover model, played by Tatum, comes to the quote-unquote rescue. Uh, is the lost city of Sage's books real? And will things get a little heated under the canopy? Well, here's our critics to tell us. Henry, in the vein of Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile, does this film balance the humor and charm to deliver a transportive experience to the tropical wilderness? Well, here's the interesting thing. I have not seen Romancing the Stone or Jewel of the Nile, so this is a... I don't have the reference point that so many other people do coming into this, but I still found it just a really enjoyable adventure comedy. It is... It's, it's a kind of classic Hollywood setup where they go, right, we have two leads who are funny and attractive and have good chemistry and we're going to put them in this crazy situation and some crazy things are going to happen and it's all going to be all right by the end of the runtime. And it is. It's just a really... There's no other way to put it other than it's just a really fun time at the cinema. I was sitting there and just thinking, it's been such a long time since I've seen a film like this in a cinema. This is the kind of stuff that just gets relegated to Netflix now, that gets, you know, put on there so that someone will watch it on a Friday with a glass of wine and then never think about it again. Whereas what it deserves is to put in a cinema so someone can watch it on a Friday with a glass of wine and never think about it again. <laughs> it's kind of... I, I almost had a similar experience with uh, that I did with Jackass Forever, where it just felt good to see something slightly different in a cinema other than some, you know, big superhero-powered blockbuster. Okay, so definitely watch it with some alcohol as well. <laughs> uh, Vicky, how does this film rank in the kind of, uh, I would say, a modern recovery of romantic comedies? What does this kind of rank? See, I, I understand the romantic comedy side, but I actually took a completely different takeaway from this in that it brings me back to, like you were saying, like the adventure mystery kind of genre. Um, for one, though, Sandra Bullock and Shining Tate have insane chemistry in this. They are the duo that we needed. I feel like... Um, They've both never disappointed me in the roles that they've taken and that I've seen. And um, they just work really well together. And this assembled cast of, like, Brad Pitt, who comes in quite strongly, and Daniel Radcliffe is, like, who plays crazy really well. Um, what it makes is, like... Uh, a genre that I think is making a comeback. So we saw it in Uncharted early this year, you know, with um, Tom Holland, and uh, it, it's another nostalgic kind of bomb film for me. So we grew up with, like, National Treasure, The Mummy, and Tomb Raider, and those were my favourite types of films. And now it's been brought back, but with, like, Sandra Bullock and Shannon Tatum at the helm, and I couldn't have been happier. But I drank this with an ice blast, and I had a really good time. <laughs> Did you, would you say you had a blast? <laughs> Uh, okay, a, a return to the kind of Indiana Jones knockoffs. That sounds promising. Uh, <laughs> Simon, did, for you, did any sparks fly between uh, Bullock and Tatum, or was it all fizzle and no bang? Oh, it definitely sparks. But when you got Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum, it's it's hard not to. I mean, the harder thing about the film in the suspension of disbelief was believing that Sandra Bullock's all washed up. It's like, no, she can't be. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have seen Romancing a Stone and Jewel of the Nile. Um, great films. Everyone who hasn't should correct that <laughs> as soon as they can. Um, and having seen the uh, trailer, I was really off-put the saying this is going to be a poor reboot of this film, even so everything on paper 
said it's going to be so good and I was happy to be wrong. It is absolutely fantastic. It's not trying to remake those films. I think because it's updated itself, um, you know, to the to the more modern times. So, you know, Sandra Bullock isn't playing a useless character. They've more well-reversed it to Channing Tatum's, you know, Alan. But is he really or do you not have a chance You before? You don't know. Um, Daniel Radcliffe always picks very interesting projects. If he's got his name on it, you know, I mean, he made the Harry Potter money. He doesn't need to make films. He does it because it's good and it's fun. And this film, lots of scenes, I was laughing throughout. Um, yeah, I was really surprised how great it was. Okay. I, I haven't actually seen this film. One thing that kind of put me off in the trailers was it, I got uh, Jungle Cruise flashbacks where um, it's not exactly... <laughs> so you, don't exactly feel, you don't exactly feel like you're in the equatorial jungle. Um, was this reliant on green screen a lot or did you kind of feel like you were there like the characters were in the mark Apart from one or two scenes i'd say a lot of it was actually shot mm. on location i think it was it guatemala mm-hmm. where the jungles of guatemala which you know looked absolutely fantastic and the beaches and the blue sky you do get to all of that holiday uh vibe um okay um was this in terms of the plot was it like a tried and true formula or was there something kind of fresh and unique here um, it's tried and true. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to say, uh, Sandra Bullock is playing the character that she has done a lot of her films, like uh, Miss Congeniality or The Heat. She's like kind of like, she looks like she's beige and that she's lost her spark, but then she becomes alive again. And so it's a very well-rehearsed um, cast that you've got here. And Sharon Tatum doesn't, doesn't take a lot. Like, he is just playing pretty in this, but then he has, like, a backstory, and, like, we haven't seen that before, have we? And then, like, I feel like it's... a a well-sustained cast of good roles um, with a interesting plotline um, that I have seen before, but I still thoroughly enjoyed. And, you know, I love anything to do with an extra, another legend I may now know that even if it is make-believe, like, <laughs> it's just, you just go along with it. And, I yeah, it's a good time. It's a really good time. It's directed by um, uh, two relatively newcomers, like the Brothers Knee, um, who I'm not sure what, what, Got them the role. What got them the kind of job directing this film? As looking at their filmography, looks like a couple features. Um, was there anything about the directing that kind of stood out, or anything that you're looking forward to seeing these guys again? Uh, I mean, not especially. It's kind of it's quite. I don't know. I, I want to say workmanlike, but that feels like it's putting it down. It's one of those films that works because it feels very effortless, and they kind of tick it along. I think at the end there were about four or five people credited as screenwriters. So I think that might be it as well. This is just a script that's been kind of floating around Hollywood for a while and a lot of different people have had a go at it to fine-tune it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, like these guys made a kind of a fun comedy that had some great action and some believable romance. So like, if they have another film coming up in the next few years, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see it. Cool. Some escapist fun, fun there from our critics. The Lost City is a certificate 12A and it's playing at The View and the Light Cinemas. Next on our lineup, we're going to high school for Battle of the Bands, if that's still a thing. I'm Kevin. Emily. (laughs) Do you like heavy metal at all? How do they do it? They suck. There's three chords and they still can't get it right. Um, I guess we'll be seeing you at the Battle of the Bands then. This is huge for us. This is our moment. No doubt. No doubt. It's nothing personal, Emily. 
It starred Jaden Martell, stars as Kevin, a, a, high, a shy high schooler coerced into starting a metal band at the behest of his best friend, Hunter. The friendship is tested as rehearsals intensify in preparation for the Battle of the Bands competition, particularly when Kevin takes a fancy to the new girl at school, who he feels may be an excellent celloist for the band. Simon, as someone who doesn't have a vested interest in metal, I liked how the film made me want the characters to want to love, love metal. Um, as someone more vested in the subculture, uh, did it satisfy the representation you were perhaps looking for? I could see there was a lot of love for metal um, in the writers of the film. The people who made this film loved metal. There's a love for it there, which really came over. Um which made me wonder why they then decided to make one of the characters so cliched um, of the usual metal dork kind of angry teenager, which just didn't seem to fit in the film, um, which was a shame because the rest of it is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I thought Jaden Martell and Isis Hainsworth were both wonderful. Um, they had a really cute you know, relationship throughout the film and gave me perks for Wallflower um, vibes from it. Um, it was just Adrian Greensmith, which his character as Hunter, the main one, whenever he came on, it just seemed to drag me out. It was like, are you, are you making people want to like metal or not like metal? Can you sh show it from the outsider's perspective about what it's like and why it's great and what you like about it while keeping it um, as a comedy? I mean, I've heard it called in a high, uh, high school comedy. I didn't feel like a, a comedy uh, most of the time. It is more of the touching high school coming-of-age film. Um, rather than all-out um, American Pie style joke, so that's not what you're going to get. Um, so, do you not think the um, the characters of Kevin and Emily, the the couple, um, they're the kind of conduits for the audience, though, to kind of get in? They are. I mean, they're the you know the conduits. They're, they're how you get into it, and you see how they love. You know how the interest in metal grows and the music, and it's got loads of cameos in it as well. And uh, Tom Morello did a lot of the music for it, which is always a good thing to hear. Um, so it, it, it's almost, there were two films here, one I absolutely loved and one was almost like, I can't believe I've done this again. So it's okay. very hit and miss here. Okay. So for the bits I love, loved it, go and recommend it. But you may see the rest of it more or less than, than I did, you know. Right, strongly mixed feelings from Simon. Henry, um... I tend to find that Netflix originals feel a little underproduced. Um, I, I don't know if it's because they're not particularly marketed, they're just kind of promoted on their own service. Um, and as such, I tend to find they have a kind of a blame, a bland sameness about them. Um, does this film stand out in terms of the Netflix catalogue? Um, there's a, a little bit. Like, I think there's a kind of, almost a bit of edge to it in the, you know, these teenagers swear quite a lot and use, you know, most of the words. Um, and there's a kind of scene near the end of, like, a, some surprising gore. But I think that's just kind of, like, a bit of seasoning on the top of what is otherwise, like, the same old thing from Netflix. Just the same old, you know, this is this is Tall Girl again, this is Kissing Booth again, this is just Netflix pushing out content for the machine. I think this is now the third show in a row where I've been on and I've talked about, like, a Netflix comedy that has been one of the worst films I've seen all year. I, I don't know why I keep doing this. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. Metal Lords was a real struggle for me. Um, it's at least short, you know. Watch this instead mm. of the bubble because it's half an hour shorter. Um, but it's still, it looks really cheap. Um, I don't know where the budget went. Probably like the licensing for the music or maybe getting the kid from it. But yeah, I don't know. There is, I, I guess, 
you know, for someone like Simon, who does love metal music, there is that appeal to it. But as someone who isn't as infatuated with that genre, I really was struggling with this film. I think I think comparing anything to The Kissing Booth is probably one of the harshest criticisms <laughs> we've had in the show in a long time. Um, I'm kind of notorious for having a soft spot for Dear Evan Hansen, which is a, a film that came out last year that dealt with kind of um, high school and mental health issues. Um, in the case of Metal Lords, um, did anyone feel like the the topic of mental health was used as a crutch or in any way exploitative, perhaps? Yeah, I, I kind of did a bit. I I mean, this is, you know, Netflix are the company who made 13 Reasons Why. They're not afraid to just throw, like I say, throw stuff in as, as flavour and go like, oh, but look, the characters are mentally ill. They don't really address it other than just showing one character who's taking medication and then later on isn't taking her medication, which causes her to go crazy. It's not dealt with sensitively. It's not the focus of the film. There's there's no point it being there other than to be on some some list or get shared in a screenshot on Twitter as well. Representation really matters, guys. Okay. Um, notably, after the Game of Thrones ended, uh, the creators D.B. Weiss and um, David Benioff were rumored to take over a role at uh, Star Wars Disney, um, but that fell through, and they kind of went. They signed a deal with Netflix, and this seems to be the first of at least D.B. Weiss's projects. He's uh, the writer for the film. Um, was this a story that just simply had to be told? Why do we think this came out? Why do you think this was the first project? It's a strange choice for a first project. Um, I mean, I don't know much about D.B. Vice. I mean, maybe he does have that love of metal which he wanted to come over. He may have saw the market saying that they've got all these uh, teen coming-of-age films, but they've got haven't actually ticked the metal box yet, um, which is probably a lot more likely. Um, I think... Uh, Henry's probably right, but I think the money did go on the licensing. It has got such a great soundtrack, and to be honest, even, even, they've got one of the scenes of the year, I think, when they got a War Pigs montage, um, which I thought was such a highlight. I don't know how anybody can dislike a film which just had that single scene in it. It was so good. Um, uh, was it nice to see... Uh, it was for me. It was a nice to see a film uh, that had kind of an '80s throwback nostalgia feel that wasn't like Stranger Things, where it was just dipped in like 1984. I mean, that was the only problem I did have with it. With it is a modern film, yet most nearly all the music was from the '80s and '90s, and metal, you know, goes all the way back from the late '60s up to now, and it is so many new stuff. It did seem to be the very much the most popular '80s, '90s. I think they're definitely going with the crossover vibe here of what people think of metal um, rather than what it is nowadays. But uh, I think if, you, if you're trying to get people on board, that might be the safest yeah. option. Uh, okay, well, Metal Lords is streaming on Netflix uh, and it's a certificate 15. Cambridge 105 Radio. Monday evenings on Cambridge 105 Radio. Strummers and Dreamers with Les Ray. As there are so many different kinds of folk songs out there. Traditional ballads, shanties, work songs, songs by singer-songwriters of all kinds, my particular thing. You'll get live sessions and interviews by local performers and those from further afield, the big names on the scene and newly emerging independent artists. Lots of new music, some classics and something special just for you. Strummers and Dreamers online whenever you want it and Monday at 7 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Are you suffering from buffering? Find yourself screaming, not streaming? Or do you just lag behind? Then it's time to demand better broadband. City Fibre is building a brand new full fibre network across the UK, giving you access to broadband from a range of providers that's more reliable and up to 20 times faster than average. 
so you can stream, game and video call without interruption. Get connected to Full Fibre today. Choose your provider at cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life You're listening to the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105. We're halfway through a fortnightly roundup of films uh, with Mythological Conquest and Naughty Nun still to come. But first, we're joining Colin Firth with a premise we hope, unlike the true story it's based on, isn't dead on arrival. In five weeks, 100,000 British forces will strike Sicily's southern shore. Unfortunately, the Nazis know of our intentions. So we're going to play a humiliating trick on Hitler. <laughs> we have to convince Germany that our target is Greece. The plan begins in Spain, where a corpse will wash up on shore bearing classified letters. A corpse carrying fake documents. Given the fascist network there, we can quite literally float the documents. From John Madden, director of Shakespeare in Love and the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, comes the true story of Operation Mincemeat, an attempt by British intelligence to have the body of a dead soldier wash upon uh, an enemy shore with details of a false invasion tactic. Firth is joined by Matthew McFadden, Kelly MacDonald, and Penelope Wilton, to name but a few. Stuart, uh, not sure how much you're into your war history, um, but did this film feel historically authentic to you? So yeah, I, I'm a huge fan uh, of any sort of uh, a Hollywood film that will go out and try and uh, find uh, a, a, like a, a dramatic retelling of, of events that really happened. So Operation Mincemeat is obviously one of those more absurd uh, World War Two strategies that actually has sort of inspired generations of spy authors uh, and filmmakers alike, um, and to the point that throughout the entire film, one of the uh, characters that's recurring and makes lots of funny quips is Ian Fleming himself, um, and I think that really sort of delivered a, a level of humour to what is otherwise fairly serious, uh, dramatic and intense sort of storyline. Uh, Simon, when when I watched the trailer, I was surprised by how kind of narrow or singular the plot seemed to be. Um, were you engaged for the whole two plus hour runtime? Oh no, not at all. Um, there is a very good story in here and the kernel of a great story, um, but unfortunately, they've decided to layer on a completely unnecessary and I think even more incredulous love triangle um, between the. Um, their agent worker um, Kelly McDonald, who who provides the photo of the love of the life of the um, the corpse uh, twenty years early, and the nice guy uh, air crew it was an air lieutenant, um, and then the admiral, which none of it was interesting. You didn't actually want any of this three-way triangle love triangle to work. It took way too much time of the film. Um, 
that they started off with a nice idea and now they keep going saying, right, we've created this character, we now need to do all the mundane parts of his, his life and history. Um, was unfortunately, it just meant you've got lots of people talking about really mundane stuff for a lot, lot, lot of the film, or the running time. Um, there's a half hour towards the end when the actual mission goes on and things start going wrong and you realise this could have been the entire film which could have been expanded more real time whether that's actually threat and interest and that should have been but with as you say John Madden uh, directing it his most of the most of the runtime is devoted to completely the wrong subject okay so shades of Pearl Harbor with the love triangle there as well um Stu, I I remember being quite disappointed in um, the Imitation Game by how much the personal drama of that film overshadowed the kind of historical events. Do you think uh, that that was kind of balanced? I I, I sort of agree. I disagree, disagree with Silence to an extent. I feel it's quite nice, even if the uh, some of the interpersonal drama behind the scenes isn't necessarily historically accurate it helps lend that element of um we see these people are fundamentally flawed and they are going out on a limb to go ahead with this absurd military strategy which no one's ever tried before um certainly not in modern warfare anyway and i i really sort of appreciate that additional drama sort of I think it complements in 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 my opinion anyway um and i particularly like um the sort of I've always quite liked Colin Firth playing sort of the bumbling Englishman. Um, I know it's kind of he's like he's a he's, it's his typecast almost for his for his career now. But I think his ability to sort of deliver that with a certain degree of sort of um, sort of charisma and uh, seriousness, I think, has sort of really come across in the past few years, particularly in light of things he started doing in terms of uh, the Kingsman, for example. He can now sort of do that sort of slightly more. Um, well, not serious for the Kingsman, but he's a. I think his his range has increased that he can do this sort of more uh, sort of war territory rather than floppy Englishman love interest in a period drama or a rom com. Uh, Simon, do you think that this was the uh, the Colin Firth show, or did other people get a chance to shine? Um, Kelly McDonald's fantastic. Um, I said as the not quite secretary, and also uh, Plenty B. Wilton as the head of the secretaries um, and right-hand lady to uh, Colin Firth's character were, were both fantastic, great support there. Um, I thought Matthew McFadden was actually quite a bit of a letdown, which is a shame because he's normally normally quite reliable. Um, and apart from that, it was it was one of the mill you'd seen it all before. Um, okay, I'm, I'm personally quite a big fan of Johnny Flynn um, as a musician, um, but I think he's, he can be touch and go when he's when he's acting. Um, so do you think this uh, this film has its kind of target demographic in mind, and uh, in that sense, into like you you said you're interested in kind of war history and the historical aspect, is it perhaps tailored too much for that, and it doesn't tickle the curiosity of people who are kind of outside of that? Well, I, I think it was a. So I went to go and see it at the Arts Picture House, and it's one of the few occasions where I've actually gone to a preview screening, and I was quite surprised to see quite so many people sat down, bums on seats on the screen, and. Um, and it was a really mixed bunch. You had family audiences, so you had in the row in front of me, for example, you had a family of about five or six, like an older father who's obviously going to come and see this for the, for the war element with his wife and his kids. I don't know if they've been dragged along to learn some history whilst they're there, but 
it was a real mix of ages, genders, all across the screening. And I think I think it delivered a lot for a lot of people, I think. It was in my screening. I think I was actually the youngest by quite a way, which doesn't happen very often. <laughs> but it was nice that it's been getting people out into the cinema who wouldn't normally go, because they all having a conversation saying they couldn't remember the last time they'd actually been out. So it's good they came out. It's good, you know, hopefully they enjoyed it a lot more than I did. Cool. Well, one for the whole family. Um, that's Operation Mincemeat. It's Tokyo 12A, and it's screening at all three Cambridge cinemas. Now, grab an oar. We're traveling north by northwest. Now, behold. He's here. He's here. Oar! Father is here. The king, my lady. The king. Your fate is set, and you cannot escape it. Wow, I've missed you, my child. This kingdom will be yours. Visionary director Robert Eggers does a slight pivot, moving from the American folk horror of The Witch and the Lighthouse to brutal mythological action with a royal swing or two in The Northman. A who's who of esteemed talent affronts the camera, including Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Willem Dafoe, Anya Taylor-Joy, Kleist Bang, and Bjork in her first feature film appearance in at least 17 years. Mystics and mayhem collide when young Prince Anleth wit- witnesses his father's murder by his uncle's hand. Vowing revenge and to save his mother, Anleth goes in exile, plotting his return decades later. Vicky, what does what does Eggers' established horror chops bring to this story? So I feel with Eggers, um, apart from The Witch, um, which was a horror film, um, when he came out of The Lighthouse, he established that he likes to make like a darker tone of film and he likes to make it about myths and legends or just like good lore behind it. Um, the Lighthouse wasn't exactly my favourite film, but he has like fully sustained his directorial like formula now and i am so on board for it because this is probably like one of my films of the uh the northman is just like so well done and i am so excited to see how eggers will do anything else but right now like i can't stop talking about this film at all like it's amazing okay i'm sure we'll get more into that mm-hmm. um simon uh Prince, uh, evil uncle, kills father. It's a familiar story. Um, is there anything familiar about the execution? Um, I mean, Robert Eggers doesn't do anything familiar. Um, I mean, I am a big fan of Robert Eggers' previous films, The Lighthouse and The Witch. Um, I find they're normally absolutely mesmerising. The style he does and the inventiveness and the weirdness is just fantastic. And I am still trying to work out why I got none of that in this film. I was sitting there wanting to be amazed and I wasn't. And I'm not sure why. It seems to have gone more more traditional storytelling. Um, you know, taking the old Hamlet um, story, which I think this was Hamlet actually based on this um and you have those moments that are sparks of weirdness and genius and great scenes and sequences but trying to like stitch over the entire length of the story of the epic journey um of of vengeance and there's just so much dragging it down and just slowing it up um that it really quite difficult to get into Okay. I completely disagree. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, well, Henry, this is, um, in terms of getting amped up and emotionally driven, this is uh, one of the most hyper-masculine films I think I've ever seen. It's a hyper-masculine romp, to say the least. Um, 
Robert Eggers has said in the past that he makes archetypal films. So if someone comes up with an interpretation of his films, he'll never say it's wrong because that's what, that's what they read into this. Did you see any kind of message in the film or was it just a shockingly cool movie to make? Yeah, I don't know. I, I've been thinking about this because I, I only saw this film yesterday and it's still really playing through my head. And just like he did with The Lighthouse, Robert Eggers has made a film that kind of it, it bypasses your brain and just goes straight to that, like, to your heart where it works for reasons that you can't quite get to. And so I'm still trying to kind of piece together, like, thematically how the film works or, like, narratively. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that it is just a piece of immaculate construction. As Simon said, it's, like, based on an old North tale called Amleth, which inspired Hamlet, which inspired The Lion King, which obviously this is inspired by. And it's it's just... You know, playing in these familiar tropes of like, yep, you know, father has been killed, son is going to avenge him. How is this going to take two hours and 20 minutes? And yet it is, it's all required for, as you say, this uber masculine romp, but a, a masculine romp that is so cool and so fun. I, I don't know. I, I'm really running out of things to say other than this is one of the coolest films I think I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a reasonable response. Mm, yeah. um, Vicky, I liked how much this reminded me of Conan in the sense that um, all the magic feels forbidden and dangerous. Mm. Um, how do you think uh, Eggers does and kind of ba- or the filmmakers balance the kind of the gritty biopic they're going for yeah. while inside this kind of magical world? I feel like um, we've seen a lot of it get kind of done this year. So um, the examples I'm going to take are... So I feel like this film had certain inspirations for me. So I thought it was going to like, like Kurosawa was throwing a blood at some points. It was, which always had like the magical element to it as well. And then you have things like the Green Knight, which is like done very fantasy wise with incredible sceneries. And I feel like that this kind of formula is done in this film. It's like fantasy and act like legend and action but just the legend action is so massive um maybe it's a little bit distilled but i definitely think it was a good counterpart to keep definitely myself there and engaged and definitely the different kind of uh witches and like uh jesters that he comes in contact with give you necessary plot points to see where you are in the story and not that it's needed but it just keeps you more engaged and you get so much more like more law to it like you get more invested because you're finding more about his journey and his story and you know um i i feel like when you ask me about like eggers as a horror director i think he uses the pacing that horror films do it's um it's a suspense driven and it's definitely a build-up of of this is my revenge and it's going to happen in so many small parts and build up to something that is so satisfying at the end um, and I feel like a lot of horror movies have done that well, and this is a good formula for this type of story. I think you kind of hinted at it there. I think the inclusion of Willem Dafoe as the jester <laughs> was a phenomenal, genius way to kind of introduce everyone to this kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, here's a little bit of mysticism because you're going to get a lot more of it later on. Um, apparently, the concept of the film was uh, devised between Eggers and Alexander Skarsgård. Um, do we think? Do we think this was a bit of a, a vanity project, perhaps, from Skarsgård's point of view? No, 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 no. I, I really want to shut that down. Like, I think Alexander Skarsgård is, is a very attractive man, and I think in a way he's kind of been cursed by that because he's also a really good actor. And so he, like, he was in The Legend of Tarzan, which is a rubbish, rubbish film, but he's in it because he's huge. And I think in this one, it is, despite the fact that he 
looks amazing in this film. It's very vanity free. He has to do a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of terrible things, and he has to go on a really complex emotional journey. That you know, I think the the emotional consequences of his his story are like the least cool parts of the the film. Let's say he has to reckon with some really difficult stuff, and I think that's a really difficult job that he really manages to pull off. You know, you've got to give him credit. Like he has gotten into incredible physical shape for this film, but as an actor, he's able to take you emotionally on that journey too, as do the rest of the cast. Well, like you said, he does. He he's partakes in some particularly horrific things early on in the film. What do you think redeems his character throughout? Why why do you still stay invested in this character after those points? Do you think? I well, I don't know how you know. We don't want to really get into spoilers, but I don't think he needs. It needs to be a journey where he is redeemed. I think that's the interesting thing is that mm. by the end you go. Was this all worth it? And that's, you know, still what I'm thinking about was kind of what was the cost of it? It's, like you say, an archetypal revenge story about what is the cost of revenge. I also like want to mention, I feel like the female, as it's quite a masculine film, but the female counterparts definitely give um, Skarsgård humanity that you probably need to see to see the development. So Anna Taylor-Joy is the perfect person. I feel like Eggers has found his crop of um, actors that he's going to use throughout. And I feel like Anna Taylor-Joy is the forefront of that. And she is the best counterpart, I can imagine, to play this character alongside Skarsgård to give him, you know, it's like a, a, the romantic storyline, but it's not overdone. It's done like perfectly and delicately. And then you've got Nicole Kidman. And then you've got, she is insanely you know twisted and like um powerful as like the like the queen at the beginning the the mother and like the person that he's been trying to save throughout this whole film and she just she's so strong like on screen that you even though the female presence is slightly diminished i mean bjork has been like at the forefront of some of the marketing for this and she's in it maybe like two or three two or three minutes max but you've got nicole kidman and she just stands her own and as she always does, and I feel like these women definitely balance out the masculinity if if, if it needed balancing out. Um, but by the violence, it did. Yeah, now Nicole Kidman always always tends to surprise in some of the roles she takes and where her characters go. A lot of the time is um, very shocking. Um, I can't I can't really imagine, despite the fact that the filmmaking is, I think we'd all agree, is pretty top notch. I can't imagine this making the rounds of award seasons very much. Do you think maybe the film takes? Is the film having too much fun? There's certainly over-the-top moments. Mm, I don't... See, I feel like... Uh, I feel like me and Simon talking about Nightmare Alley. We never expected it to be in like the award season, but yeah, it was just so well done and like it was so indulgent in like, its scenery and everything. And I feel like this is very indulgent as a film and it might make award seasons. It might surprise us uh, like Nightmare Alley did, but I just... Um, if, even if it doesn't, I think it's still going... Even, like, coming out from one day on, everyone I've known has given it around about four or five-star reviews, and I just think it's going to be really well-received, so it'd be a shame if it wasn't. And what kind of audience do you think this would appeal to most? Because it's quite gory, it's kind of hor- it's kind of horrific in both horror atmosphere and kind of the visuals. Who do, who do you think would really benefit from watching this film? I, I don't know. I feel like this is, this is like a proper blockbuster. It is being marketed as, like, a you know, an art house film as a kind of weird little curio. But, you know, as the budget itself will tell you, this is like, this is a huge film. And I think despite the the weirdness around it, it is genuinely accessible. You know, it is a pretty simple revenge story. And I think 
anyone who's willing to go in with an open mind, whether they've seen any of Vegas films before, whether they're like you know familiar with any of the cast and their smaller roles, I think that they're actually really going to surprise themselves by how much they enjoy this film. This is definitely the most accessible of Eggers mm-hmm. um, so far, and uh, even with the like the old school kind of language used a little bit throughout, it's still so clear in its sayings. So you're saying it's not Tragedy of Macbeth? It's not Tragedy of Macbeth, and it's not The Lighthouse. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, last one, do, you, do we think this is one people need to see in the cinema? Yes. One, 100%. Oh, yeah. 100%. The sound design on its own is like needed to be heard that way. I can't imagine seeing it any other, any other way. Excellent. Uh, well, a resounding catch on the big screen from our team here. Um, just don't take the kids, because The Northman is a well-earned certificate 15, uh, and it's screening at all the Cambridge cinemas. Finally, our last film, Has Mother Superior Jumped the Gun? False Prophets will be having none of that. <laughs> Benedetta! Viens à moi! J'arrive, Seigneur! J'arrive! On ne comprend pas toujours les instruments de Dieu. Dutch director Paul Verhoeven casts his unique eye upon a convent during the plague years in Benedetta, when a young devout girl with a special relationship to the Virgin Mary uh, grows up to exude signs of stigmata and claiming to commune with Jesus, the church must decide what to do about a potential living saint saint, in a time when hope is all but lost. Henry, a few years ago, uh, Verhoeven published a book about the historical Jesus, Um, so clearly uh, there is there's a interest there in ecumenical matters um, and he also has no shame when it comes to filming eroticism Uh, does Benedetta come off as an irreverent Ken Russell sex romp or a genuine analysis of faith and its benefits and pitfalls I mean I think for me it is like it is as the credits say it is probably unfilmed to Paul Verhoeven as you say he's like interested in Jesus he's written that book he made Robocop which is the best film about Jesus ever made and I think with this, he is really sticking to what he's good at. This is, like, him aiming to be scandalous. And I think for the most part, it works. Um, you know, I'm someone who has written thousands of words on showgirls at, like, university. So I'm kind of I'm very familiar with him attempting to, to tantalise and to shock. Um, I think, honestly, one of the things about Benedetta is it could have shocked a bit further. But also, there's a weird balance in that he is dealing with very sensitive issues with you know with sexuality and religion and i think there are people who are going to see some of the places he takes he takes the narrative to in this film and just reject it flat out and say no this is unacceptable i can't go there and i think if you are willing to go on this journey which is a lot funnier than i think the trailers are and the marketing is making it look then you are going to surprise yourself with how like gleeful this film can be Vicky, um, are, hmm. are the staple Verhoeven traits of sex and violence a distraction from what could have been a more serious biopic, or do they kind of elevate it into something? They elevate it so much more. Um, this is not uh, a topic that I would generally go to see on the screen, as in you know religion and that kind of way. But as soon as you see, like, hear the director's name, like it's it's done by Ver- like Verhoeven, you're like, okay, I'm going to watch it, and I'm so glad I did because of that one reason. Um, he has elevated this film to uh, to what it is quite, which is, like Henry said, so much funnier than it's getting out. I, I thought I heard my friends, like, true giggle, like, throughout this. Um, it's definitely, there's scenes that are shocking, but in, uh, in, 
it's light it's done lightly as in like it's not it's shocking to see on screen but there's like a playfulness to each of these things that he's presenting and I think it's generally just because it is a subject um, a film of religious religious subject that they are seen as shocking whereas we've definitely seen it in other films go by and it's not as it's not as that drama dramatized on screen so um you know, I um, I probably wouldn't have watched it if it wasn't directed by Verhoeven at the end of the day, but, yeah, that's where we currently are. There's <laughs> always a good excuse. Um, Simon, uh, the, the marketing for the film certainly hasn't shied away from the kind of uh, erotic element of the film, um, but uh, almost all the actresses make themselves incredibly vulnerable while having to give these very serious performances. Were there any standouts for you? Uh, definitely Patakia uh, as Bartolomea was absolutely... Spellbinding. The just the look of her face in the underneath the wimple on the uh, it just showed so much emotion um, with everything else. And uh, Virginia Fira with Benedetta and of course Charlotte Rampling um, was was absolutely fantastic. I mean, of course, the film is all in French, so I forgot how good her French is. Um, yeah, they were. I mean, they were the three main characters, and they were all stand out. They do raise it up enough. Um, to another level, I mean, it's it's almost cliche to say an art house film is the one about a seventeenth um, century lesbian nuns or something like that. I mean, you got Paul Verhoeven coming back to that. When I saw the uh, promotion and the trailers for it, it's like this is this is the ultimate art film. This is a cliched art film. Yet it's from the guy who did Starship Troopers and Robocop, and he's gone back to the roots and um, absolutely fantastic. Um, I, you know, I was absolutely gripped from the from the beginning to the end. Um, there's quite a lot of uh, Pythonesque absurdities to it, um, which just raised it even more. And he has that satirical eye to it, which um, you know, when you're tackling a subject like the, you know the church and um, uh, the way uh, feminist rights in you know the church in 17th century Italy. Um, I think you need to have that eye. Um, it does make it approachable, more approachable, while it would still be shocking to a lot of the mainstream, I think, as well. And a lot of people will dislike it and will find it shocking. I think, actually, if you give it a go and you've not seen films like this, I think you really enjoy it. Yeah, there's always, there's always um, a bit of a divisiveness about the interp- when people interpret Verhoeven's films, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to say it again. Here we are again with another week of two-plus-hour films. Uh, as much as a as fan of Mr. Verhoeven as I am, um, I think the most extravagant thing about the film uh, was the runtime. Um, I often think films rob themselves of a place in pop culture just by just by overrunning the clock. Um, does the naughty or nice Benedetta overstay a welcome? I mean, I thought I saw three two-hour-plus films yesterday, um, ready for this one, and I thought Benedetta definitely felt the shortest of the three. I completely agree with that. Um, it's very fast-paced in its actions. And I feel like that's good because it doesn't dwell on any too heavy plot points that could keep you distracted or drag you down. But it's fast paced. It gets to the point in a lot of things. I went to the toilet for, I'm going to say, a minute and I miss so much. (laughs) Um, So I definitely, uh, I don't think it felt like the two hour runtime that it is. I definitely, um, and I don't know how he did that quite, because the, (laughs) quite so. But um, yeah, no, it doesn't feel like it at all. And I'm happy. I'm happy about that. Would you like to see more of these kind of extravagant ways of telling historical stories? 
Yeah, definitely. I think these kind of period, like Simon was saying, it is such a cliche where it's like, here's another period drama, and it's it's about oh, it's a serious topic that this this acclaimed art house director's made. But Verhoeven does have a way of going. No, this is a you know a real story that did happen, but I'm going to tell it my way. I think more weird art house directors should be given the keys to historical events and told, yeah, go on, go rampant, make something weird. Okay, well, I'm not sure in what context to recommend seeing Benedetta, but all of our <laughs> critics here enjoy it. Um, it's a sleazy pulp drama with something thoughtful to say about uh, human nature and the divine. Um, maybe not the best first date movie. Um, it's a whooping, whooping certificate 18, big fan of that, um, and it's screening at the Arts Picture House. That's all the time we have for today. We've exhausted our fortnightly listings. Uh, please do join us on Saturday, Saturday the 30th of April when we'll be revisiting Downton Abbey for a new era. I can't wait. <laughs> and we'll be stepping into the shoes of living legend Nicolas Cage and the unbearable weight of massive talent. But for now, it's goodbye from the studio team. Goodbye. goodbye. And goodbye from me. Here's some Bjork of the star, or not quite the star, according to Vicky, of The Northman. Cambridge 105 Radio.